Hi, this is Timothy Bartell. I am the assistant professor of great texts in literature here at the St. Constantine School. And I wanted to take a few minutes today to talk about a poet that I've been very fascinated with recently, Geoffrey Hill. He just passed away, actually, at the end of June. He was born in 1932, so he had a good long life and a very long career. He started publishing poetry in the 1950s, and his last works he's been publishing just in the last five or ten years. So he's a fascinating poet. He's from England, uh, Worcestershire. He often t says in his lectures that he's the son of a Worcestershire bobby. I love his voice. You can hear his voice on the Oxford Professor of Poetry recordings on the Oxford University website, and I encourage people to look those up. They're quite good. There are about 15 lectures that he gave from 2011 to 2015. I don't want to talk about him broadly. I want to focus on one poem of his that I've returned to many times in the last few years, and this is called The Laurel Axe. It's a sonnet, and I want to read it and then comment on it and then zoom out towards the end of my commentary and talk about why poetry like this matters to me as a poetry professor, to us at the St. Constantine School, and in general. So this is The Laurel Axe. Autumn resumes the land, ruffles the woods with smoky wings, entangles them. Trees shine out from their leaves, rocks mildew to moss green. The avenues are spread with brittle floods. Platonic England, house of solitudes, rests in its laurels and its injured stone, replete with complex fortunes that are gone, beset by dynasties of moods and clouds. It stands as though at ease with its own world, the mannerly extortions, languid praise, all that devotion long since bought and sold, the rooms of cedar and soft thudding bays, tremulous boudoirs where the crystals kissed in cabinets of amethyst and frost. This sonnet I first read while I was sitting on the cliffs just below Arthur's Seat, looking southeast over the town of Edinburgh, which is in southern Scotland. I couldn't actually see the Scottish-English border, but I imagined I could, looking out south down toward the borders. And I think that forever etched in my mind when I read this, especially the descriptions of autumn, the descriptions of England standing at ease with its own world. I picture that vista that I saw from those cliffs. It's always a little dangerous to read a poem for the first time in a very beautiful, very specific place, because often you'll end up interpreting the poem just through that experience. But in this case, I think it was helpful to be thinking about England, sitting on a promontory height, looking out south toward it as I read it. Uh, the context of this poem is actually that it's the ninth sonnet in a 13-sonnet sequence that was published in 1978. And the sequence has a rather strange name. The sequence is called An Apology for the Revival of Christian Architecture in England. It's a, it, it isn't very poetic, I suppose you could say. It's actually taken from the title of a 19th century work about, well, the revival of Christian architecture, in this case, Gothic architecture in England, written by a man named Pugin, I think is how you say it. And it was a defense of uh, Gothic-style revival in the Victorian age. Now, 
Jeffrey Hill, of course, is not living in the Victorian age. He's living in the 20th century. And so this is a meditation on England and English history. And it's set in particular in autumn. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how, he's, how he's talking about seasons here. Autumn resumes the land, ruffles the woods with smoky wings, entangles them. Trees shine out from their leaves, rocks mildew to moss green. The avenues are spread with brittle floods. These are the first four lines of the poem. And I think this is often what we expect from poetry. We expect a description of pretty things in new and exciting ways. And you might think I'm, I'm saying, oh, we shouldn't, we should ask for more than this from poetry. And Hill will give us more than this, but he wants us to hang out a little bit in these first lines with this autumn scene. It's autumn that's ruffling things. Autumn has smoky wings. That's a weird image. Uh, one critic has said it reminds them of Pentecost, the flames and the dove referring to uh, the descent of the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure that that's going on. Smoky wings is, is beautiful, also potentially dangerous. If a bird's wings were smoking, I would be worried about it, uh, unless, of course, it was some supernatural sign. The line I really like, and the line I think I would point out if I was teaching a poetry class on this poem to aspiring young poets, is the last line that I read, the avenues are spread with brittle floods. Now, if he had just said the avenues are spread with floods or the avenues are spread with little floods, we might think, oh, that's, that's a nice image of streets having puddles on them. But one of the nice things that he's doing with language here is he puts brittle in there. Brittle doesn't seem to be a word we associate with liquid water. We associate brittle with solid things. We think about this term brittle floods for a moment. We might think, well, water is only brittle when it's ice. And then, ah, he's telling us the roads are icy, but he's saying it in such a way that we have to think for a little bit about it. And also the idea that ice is a brittle flood, that, that's one of those descriptions of nature, something that maybe you'd see any day in England, a frozen street, in a way that makes you ponder it, look at it harder, think about how we describe the world. And once again, this is all what we might call conventional things that we look for in poetry. And I think Hill does it quite well. But Hill, one of the things I love about him is he's not content to just stop there. He could, and many other poets just would, say, okay, I wrote a few lines that were pretty about autumn. I'm done now. It's not what Hill's doing. In the next four lines, he zooms out, as it were, not in physical space, but almost in historical space. He says, Platonic England, house of solitudes, rests in its laurels and its injured stone. Platonic England. Uh, that word platonic jars us a bit, perhaps. We were just in brittle floods and smoky wings and ruffled woods, and all of a sudden platonic. Uh, it sounds like we're walking into an intro to philosophy class or something. Well, actually, th there is a poetic reason for him calling England Platonic England. He's referencing a quotation by Samuel Taylor Coleridge that he puts at the beginning of this sonnet sequence. The exact quote by Coleridge is, Spiritual Platonic Old England, which Coleridge in his literary criticism contrasts with what he calls commercial Great Britain. So you have this England, which is spiritual and platonic and ancient, and then commercial Great Britain, which is new and concerned with the everyday, with business, with the here and now, with making money, perhaps. 
Coleridge associates particular writers with these two particular Platonic England and commercial England. He says Milton and Wordsworth are part of Platonic England, whereas Locke and Adam Smith are part of commercial Great Britain. One might think then that Hill is saying, ah, oh, the poets, the poets in England, they keep it pure, they keep our ideals ancient and high, and then there's this other thing, commercial Great Britain, which kind of ruins it. But he's doing something a little, a little more complex here. He says, Platonic England, house of solitudes, rests in its laurels and its injured stone. Okay, solitude, laurels, stone, all of these do seem to be words that we would associate with the ancientness of England, and maybe also the idealism of England. Rests in its laurels. That sounds like the phrase, rest on your laurels, which is an old way of saying someone's accomplished something great, the laurel is the wreath of victory that was given to either an athletic competitor or even more often in the ancient world, someone who's won a poetry contest. To rest on your laurels means to have won a bit and then sit back and be lazy and be okay with the fact that you did one good thing, you won once, and you're fine. Platonic England, he's saying, is resting in its laurels. That in is interesting. I expect an on, he gives me an in. It's a little surprising. It rests in its laurels and its injured stone. And I think this is the first time in the poem that you get this idea that there's been some violence done in England. There's some wound there. It's not just old stone. It's not just mossy stone. It's injured. Someone has hurt it. And then in the next line, we get replete with complex fortunes that are gone, beset by dynasties of moods and clouds. There were complex fortunes, and they're gone. Something of the richness of England has been taken. And if we look down to the next stanza, it stands as though at ease with its own world. The mannerly extortions, languid praise, all that devotion long since bought and sold. Here we have three instances of what we might call oxymoron. Mannerly things are usually those which are polite, but he gives us mannerly extortions. Praise is exuberant, exalting, genuine, but he gives us languid praise. Devotion bought and sold. We think of devotion as something that has little to do with the world of buying and selling, but no, here devotion is bought and sold. So we have these three instances, mannerly extortions, languid praise, devotion long since bought and sold, that give us this sense that Platonic England, that which is supposed to be high and lifted up and ideal and above the commonplace, it's somehow sullied itself by extortions, by languidity, by buying and selling devotion. At this point in the poem, we might think, wow, England doesn't sound so good. It sounded pretty pretty in that first stanza. We had, uh, we had pretty autumn and the brittle floods, and then we had platonic England and solitude. That sounded kind of nice, if a little highfalutin. But now everything seems compromised. And this is something that Hill has been praised for, uh, and also chided for over the course of his career, that he doesn't seem to let anyone off the hook in his poetry, uh, not even himself. He'll talk about something, England often, and describe its grandeur, and then describe how it's been compromised, and describe how it has done violence to itself and others. There are a couple other poems in this 
sequence titled A Short History of British India. In 1976, two years before these poems were published, he had gone to India and gone to Calcutta, where there's a graveyard dedicated to those who died in the service or because of the British East India Company. So he's very aware of the fact that British Empire has done violence and that Platonic England, not just commercial Great Britain, is implicated in this violence that's been done to Britain's own self and those that Britain has come into contact with and ruled. So this isn't a happy poem, we might say. But let's, let's move on now to the last three lines. All that devotion long since bought and sold. The rooms of cedar and soft thudding bays, tremulous boudoirs where the crystals kissed in cabinets of amethyst and frost. These are some of my favorite words in all of Hill's work. Cedar and soft thudding bays. It's fun to say, and I, I in fact had to look up the word bays. Uh, the word is spelled B-A-I-Z-E. It's not B-A-Y-S. Then we would think of bay trees, perhaps. Bays. Uh, I'm interested to know if anyone listening to this knows what bays is. When I looked it up, it turned out that it's the velvety green material that you line a pool table with for playing billiards or in Britain's snooker. And this made sense of the soft thudding. If you've ever listened to someone playing pool, there are those slow, slow, soft slides of the pool stick over the bays, and then the thud of ball against ball, and the clack of balls as they hit each other, and then thud against the sides and into the pockets. And it's something I love about the sound here. You can almost hear that pool go game going on. Rooms of cedar and soft thudding bays. You, you almost get the sense that you're overhearing a pool game in the next room. But it's interesting, we move from that, which we might even call a old-fashioned British masculine sphere, the men retire to play games and smoke cigars, perhaps. We move from the rooms of cedar and soft thudding bays to tremulous boudoirs where the crystals kissed in cabinets of amethyst and frost. And I think that's a movement from a masculine sphere to what we might think of as a feminine sphere. Crystal, amethyst, cabinets. This reminds me, and once again I'm going to talk about something in my own life which may or may not be harming my interpretation of this, but I remember my grandmother used to have this clear cabinet of glass that she would keep purple and blue and green perfume bottles in, and it was often in a room where there was no lights on, and I remember watching the morning light come in through mostly curtained windows and light up gently the perfume bottles. And I think of that when I read this, the crystals kissed in cabinets of amethyst and frost. Of course, he doesn't say perfume bottles, he doesn't say grandma, so I'm importing that. But I think it's an interesting image to end on. We've started outside in autumn with the ruffled woods and the brittle floods. We've zoomed out in history to think about how England has tried to have ideals over time, but has often been compromised. And then we end with the men playing pool and the cabinets of beautiful glass and minerals. This last image 
is, I think, interesting partly because it seems to be enduring. Chesterton said, drop a wine glass and it will not last for an instant, but simply do not touch it and it will last a thousand years. There's something brittle about these images of the crystal and the amethyst and frost, but the crystal and the amethyst, at least, will last for generations. There's something that propels us into this wider vista of history in these last lines. One of the things I'm interested in as a poet also in these last lines is that Hill avoids a rhyme that I think I would have gone for. Tremulous boudoirs where the crystals kissed in cabinets of amethyst and frost. Those are the last two lines. And kissed and frost sort of rhyme. They both have that t sound at the end. But they don't exactly rhyme. They, they're what we might call a slant rhyme. If I was writing this poem, and I was going to put the word amethyst and the word frost at the end of this poem, I would have written tremulous boudoirs where the crystals kissed in cabinets of frost and amethyst. Then you would get the nice kissed amethyst. It would sound great. It would, it, the words themselves would be kissing each other with that exact rhyme. But Hill doesn't want to give us the easy rhyme, and this is something I respect him for. He hides that exact rhyme of amethyst in the middle of the last line. It's a formal decision that poets often make to not satisfy us completely. After all, he's just said there are some problems in England, not just in England currently, but in England's history. And I think if he was to end the poem in such a way that we felt like there was an exact rhyme, everything's good, I can go out and be happy and think about kissed amethyst, that's nice. But kissed and frost rhyming leaves a sense of unease, I think. And that frost there is a word that's not quite as enduring as crystal and amethyst. Frost is something that comes and goes. Frost melts. Frost harms and freezes and can do damage, especially to agriculture, but then it goes. Frost is a beautiful but cold, not just literally, but also figuratively, word to end on, and I like that. I want to close, I've done a close read of some lines of this poem, and I want to close with why I think a poem like this matters today. Often when we think about poetry, we think about things that people wrote hundreds of years ago in language that is old-fashioned, that's hard to understand, and mostly it's about some girl that some guy loved that we don't know about, and people go on and on about it, and it all seems a little cheesy and old-fashioned. Jeffrey Hill is a poet that, because he's writing in a modern idiom, because he's caring about things that we don't often think about poetry dealing with, political things, economic things, questions of the complexities of governmental intervention around the world, questions of the relationship between the world of the arts and the world of business in a culture. These questions are things you turn on the nightly news and you hear your people talking about. Jeffrey Hill, and by extension poetry in general, is someone who can give us the matters that we care about and often talk poorly about in very carefully rendered language. The title of this poem, which I haven't talked about, and I think has resonances that I haven't even discovered yet, is very interesting in that regard. The Laurel Axe. Laurels, we said earlier, are the leaves that crown the victor of the poetry competition. The axe, well, the axe is, it's a thing of violence. Uh, we cut down trees with axes. We 
hew other people with axes. I think of Gimli hewing orc necks in The Lord of the Rings. The laurel axe, those two things sit together uneasily. And in Hill's poetry, and in our own world, the world of art, of solitude, of high ideals, sits uncomfortably in a world of violence. How do we navigate that world that we live in? How do we navigate a world where we have ideals, uh, even eternal ideals that are gained from texts like the Holy Scriptures that we believe are divinely inspired, that give us what we need for all faith and living? How do we live with ideals in this world of axes, of business, of mannerly extortions and languid praise? Well, poets help us think about how to meditate on these things and consider them. In my poetry classes that I'll teach at the St. Constantine School, in the poetry classes I have taught, I try to think about how these poems go beyond just entertaining us or disturbing us to helping us live better and richer lives. And in particular, I think Hill helps us talk about the things we're going to talk about anyway in a language that's careful, that's labored over, and that hopefully illumines for us ideas and concepts and hope that we didn't see before we came in contact with his poem, and hopefully before we started to imitate his care with words. I think we should never leave a poem aside without thinking, how can I take more care with my words and thus discover how better to talk about what I care about already? Also, poetry can help us care about new things. Perhaps you didn't care about England. Well, now, hopefully, through Hill, you have an opportunity to care about England and its history, and hopefully, by extension, your own country and your own history. This has been Dr. Timothy Bartell, Assistant Professor of Great Texts and Literature for the St. Constantine School. Thank you.